It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Jonathan Gayhart, in for Alex Wagner. We are following big breaking news this evening. Maine's Secretary of State, Sheena Bellows, has decided that former President Trump is ineligible to appear on that state's 2024 Republican primary ballot because he incited an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, almost three years ago. With her ruling, Maine has now become the second state to say that Trump is ineligible to appear on the 2024 Republican primary ballot. The Bellows decision comes a week after the Colorado Supreme Court issued a similar ruling. That ruling is now being appealed by both sides to the nation's highest court. The nine justices of the Supreme Court are being petitioned to settle the issue of whether Trump is barred from serving as president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars any candidate from holding the office who engaged in insurrection. In her ruling tonight, Maine Secretary of State wrote, and I quote, I have little trouble concluding that the events of January 6, 2021, were an insurrection within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The record establishes that Mr. Trump, over the course of several months and culminating on January 6, 2021, used a false narrative of election fraud to inflame his supporters and direct them to the Capitol to prevent certification of the 2020 election and the peaceful transfer of power. Mr. Trump was aware of the likelihood for violence and at least initially supported its use, given he both encouraged it with incendiary rhetoric and took no timely action to stop it. The weight of the evidence makes clear that Mr. Trump was aware of the tinder laid by his multi-month effort to delegitimize a Democratic election and then chose to light a match. Bellows notes in the decision that she is aware it may be struck down by the Supreme Court. She also writes that she has paused the decision to strike Trump from the ballot pending a likely Trump appeal. Tonight, the Trump campaign is vowing to appeal in state court. It calls the decision, quote, atrocious, adding that it came from, quote, and I'm quoting, a virulent leftist and a hyper-partisan Biden-supporting Democrat who has decided to interfere in the presidential election on behalf of crooked Joe Biden. In her conclusion, the main Secretary of State writes, quote, I am mindful that no Secretary of State has ever deprived a presidential candidate of ballot access based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I am also mindful, however, that no presidential candidate has ever before engaged in insurrection. The events of January 6th, she wrote, were unprecedented and tragic. They were an attack not only on the Capitol and government and officials, but also an attack on the rule of law. The evidence here demonstrates that they occurred at the behest of and with the knowledge and support of the outgoing president. The U.S. Constitution does not tolerate an assault on the foundations of our government. So we now have two states that have ruled that Trump did engage in insurrection and should not appear on their state's primary ballots. 
Those decisions will now clearly be appealed to up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which will decide whether Trump is a legitimate candidate entitled to run for and hold the highest office in the land. The question is, how will the nation's highest court rule and when? Here with me now to discuss our former Deputy Assistant Attorney General Harry Lippman and Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer covering courts and the law for Slate Magazine. Thank you both very much for being here this evening. Mark, let me come to you. You, you first. Your reaction to the, the, the decision by the main Secretary of State. Uh, this is obviously a really big deal, and it feels like the dominoes are maybe beginning to fall. You know, when it was just Colorado that had gotten out in front, striking Trump from the ballot, it felt like maybe it was an outlier, an aberration. But now we have another state, Maine, that has undertaken a very serious review through the Secretary of State's office and reached the same conclusion. The legal analyses are beginning to all point in the same direction. The evidence that Trump incited an insurrection in the terms of the 14th Amendment, it's starting to pile up. And so I do wonder, if I were a Republican primary voter, might I think, you know, it's Trump who I support, but it's time to start considering an alternative, because there's not even a 100% chance that this guy is constitutionally eligible to appear on the ballot in 2024. You know, Harry, I read uh, lengthy excerpts from from the the Secretary of State's decision, but— Maybe we should hear from um, Secretary Bellows herself. She was on MSNBC in the last hour. Listen. The record demonstrates that, in fact, the events of January 6, 2021, which were unprecedented and tragic, uh, were an insurrection uh, in the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And finally, uh, in reviewing the facts presented, the evidence, uh, the law, the history, um, we determined uh, under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that Mr. Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore was disqualified. And so, Harry, Maine law requires her, Secretary of State Bellows, to make a decision before this goes to the courts. Two, two questions, and, and Mark alluded to this in, in his answer, but she had to do a review. This isn't just some decision that she came up on her own. Talk to us about how she came to this decision, and will this decision have any bearing on how the main courts consider this question? So on the second, yes, it will. I mean, they'll take it and, and review it with some deference. How did she come to it? Very similar to the Colorado Supreme Court. It's a methodical, uh, really well-reasoned opinion, pretty long, 34 pages. In particular, the piece of it, Jonathan, that analyzes whether he's an officer, which was the disputed issue between the Colorado trial court and Supreme Court. She has a much longer sort of historically anchored analysis I really think it's hard to quibble with what she's done under Maine law. On the other hand, this makes manifest what was sort of latent when, as Mark said, we had just Colorado, which is the U.S. Supreme Court is going to know that there's a a real potential for a, a patchwork Um, kind of pattern in the country where some, for different reasons, depending on state law, disqualify him, others don't. I think that's going to be anathema to them. And yet it's a challenge because these are different state law kinds of rulings and they can't just willy-nilly slap them down unless they have one 
federal law uh, principle to do. And for example, the the um, possibility of saying he's not an officer, I think, got more remote today based on her pretty uh, well-reasoned analysis. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Mark, um, whether or not the Supreme Court has a 6-3 um, this conservative supermajority. The, the the institution of the Supreme Court, just as an institution, doesn't like patchwork patterns. Doesn't like to have different courts and different jurisdictions um, ruling in different ways. So, is it inevitable that the Supreme Court will will take this case? And and how quickly do you think they will? I, I think the answer is yes. The Supreme Court will take up these cases. Colorado, Maine, perhaps more, and hopefully decide them very quickly because, of course, the primaries are right around the corner and it is now a contested question whether Trump is eligible to appear on the ballot. But I think that the Maine Secretary of State's decision tonight really creates a problem for the Supreme Court. You know, if this were just Colorado, the Supreme Court could have found some Colorado-specific reason to overturn the state Supreme Court, to say, well, Colorado law didn't provide sufficient due process to Donald Trump that the Colorado Supreme Court didn't follow the state's election code correctly. Now we have a completely separate procedure, separate set of election laws, and Maine has reached the same conclusion. And so I do think this is going to force the court to consider going big, to consider issuing a big decision that, for instance, says Trump did not, by definition, engage in an insurrection. That would be a hugely controversial ruling, but I don't think the court can punt like it might have even just a day ago. It's going to have to get into the meat of these issues and the country might not like its answers. Well, Harry, let's talk more about the that Colorado ruling because Colorado voters who won a victory at the Colorado State Supreme Court last week, uh, today, petitioned the Supreme Court to rule quickly. They asked for oral arguments on January 19th and a ruling by February 11th. Uh, 11th. How likely is that scheduled? Well, the schedule is not that unlikely. And by the way, I totally agree with Mark about the complicating factor here. They can't do a one-off opinion. This, that, that is, they are, they're a party. They intervene below. But the, the petition everyone's waiting for is Trump's. And that will come soon. Remember, the stay the Colorado Supreme Court gave expires on the 4th of January. And that request, uh, if he makes it for expedited treatment or if Smith jumps in with that sort of request, that's when I think you'll see the court hopping to. I'm not certain whether this petition will trigger it, but it is a, a virtual certainty that A, they'll decide it and B, they'll decide it quickly. Also, C, they wish they didn't have to for the reasons <laughs> Mark just said. A, a polarized opinion would really look bad for the court, but they are stuck here. Uh, Mark, how likely is it that Justice Clarence Thomas recuses himself from any of these Trump-related cases, but especially um, the ballot access cases? I would estimate that the odds are about 0%, Jonathan. (laughs) Uh, You know, Clarence Thomas has, of course, participated in previous January 6th-related cases, even though his wife, Ginny, was involved in trying to overturn the election and was actually at the ellipse on January 6th. I don't think this will be any different, even though the court has put forth what it calls a code of ethics. It is a non-binding and unenforceable code. There is no person or body that can require Clarence Thomas to recuse. 
choose. The decision is still in his hands. And so even though under federal law he clearly should, I really don't think he will. Mm-hmm. Hey, Harry, um, let me get your thoughts on something that my Washington Post uh, opinion colleague Ruth Marcus wrote last week. Uh, and I'm quoting here. The best outcome for the court and the country would be for a unanimous court, preferably an 8-0 court with Justice Clarence Thomas recusing himself, (laughs) to clear the way for Trump to run. All right. Three different things there from Ruth. First, unanimous. It's clearly true. And the court knows it on both sides. And they'll be trying, but it might not be possible. Second, Thomas recusing. I'm with I'll go with 0.00. And third, would it be unanimous clearing the way to run? I understand that argument. On the other hand, the constitutional provision seems met here. Either way, they'll take a lot of heat. I, I, you know, you could also argue that it's a clear decision saying he can't, but the clarity is what really matters. Mm -hmm. And they are going to, I think, with their natural divide, have trouble coming to a a unanimous decision. And though they will try and that raises the prospect that the court's already uh, lowered capital will be lowered still. Mm-hmm. Mark, one more question for you, because ballot access isn't the only question that's going to land before the Supreme Court. There's also the question of of immunity, presidential immunity. That's what Donald Trump is arguing um, in the in Jack, uh, Jack Smith's case. Is that a case they can punt? No, that is a case they must decide. The question of presidential immunity goes to something we call jurisdiction, which means does the court even have the power to hear this case? Trump says he's immune from prosecution for the events of January 6th, and that means that Judge Chutkin on the trial court literally cannot hear any aspect of the case, must toss it out into the garbage. The Supreme Court will need to decide quickly whether or not that is true, and not making a decision would surely allow allow Trump to run out the clock until the election and perhaps beyond. So that is very much coming to us like a speeding train. Um, and and um, agree. It, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, um, is your zero percent, zero, zero, zero likelihood of, of, of uh, Clarence Thomas recusing himself? Is there a zero point zero zero percent chance that the su- Supreme Court rules that he has a immunity? Very close to it. I am very confident that this Supreme Court will hold that Trump does not have immunity and that he must face trial. Well, all right, then. I'll I'll take that optimism. Harry Littman, Mark Joseph Stern, thank you both very much for coming to the program this evening. Coming up, more news tonight concerning the fake electors plot. New details about the Trump campaign's mad dash to get the fake certificates to D.C. in time for Vice President Mike Pence to count them. That's next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. 
you can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. One of the central features of Donald Trump's campaign to overturn the 2020 election was the fake electors plot. Trump's campaign enlisted the help of Republican officials and activists in seven states to try to submit fraudulent election certification documents, documents that would have declared Trump the winner of the election. Part of that scheme was the mad dash to actually get those fake documents to Vice President Mike Pence so that he could accept them in his official role overseeing the election certification process. And now, brand new recordings obtained by CNN detail the extreme lengths they almost went to in order to make it happen. Here's a portion of those new recordings in which Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesbro explains how the Trump campaign almost chartered private jets to get the documents to Washington in time. The general counsel campaign was alarmed and, and was chartering, well, they didn't have to charter a jet, but they did commercial. I mean... No, so that says that in the email. Yeah, I forget. I forget. I forget if they charted, but that's you know. This is like yeah. So this is a high level decision yeah. to get the Michigan and and Wisconsin votes there. To and they they had to enlist a uh, the, you know a, a U.S. senator to to try to expedite it to get it uh, get it to uh, uh, Pence in time. NBC News has not independently verified the authenticity of these recordings. But you heard Kenneth Chesbrough mention that they had to enlist the help of a U.S. senator to get those documents there. The senator he's talking about is Wisconsin Republican Ron Johnson, who dispatched his staff to deliver the documents to Pence upon their arrival in Washington. New emails obtained by CNN showed just how important Johnson and his staff were to that scheme. Which might be why Senator Johnson has gone out of his way to avoid answering questions about it. How much did you know about what your chief of staff was doing with the alternate slates of electors? No, you're not. I can see your phone. I can see your screen. Can you explain what happened there? Why was your chief of staff even offering this to the vice president? That's a complete non-story. We just used statements. And this is a non-story. I don't, I don't know what you're, what you're even concerned about. Well, non-story. Joining us now, Shan Wu, former counsel to the attorney general and former federal prosecutor. Shan, thank you very much for coming in this evening. Uh, Trump's defense has been that these fake docs were a backup in in case um, the courts ruled in their favor, which basically none of them did. Does the fact that they were rushing these documents to Washington, rushing to get them there um, uh, in early January, undercut that argument? I think the backup argument, I mean, yeah, I I think it does, because at that point there was nothing pending. I mean, it's not as though they're about to have another court hearing. They'd lost on everything. And it just shows how committed they were to this fraud that was being perpetrated, that they were so anxious they didn't even trust the U.S. mail that they had to get it there (laughs) themselves to make sure that it would arrive there. So it really shows just how much how many steps they took towards that and how committed they were to it. 
You know, th these new emails also reveal that the reason why they needed Senator Ron Johnson was because a courier couldn't just walk into the Capitol <laughs> and, and walk onto the uh, on, onto the House floor and hand things to the vice president. What does that say about how serious they were about getting these documents to Pence? Well, they're very serious and they very much understood the procedural aspects here and the timeline that it had to get to him. It wasn't enough just to email them or let him know about it. They wanted to put Pence in the position of here they are, make him choose at that moment. And Johnson's involvement, I mean, really critical to have a U.S. senator help you with that. And his efforts to distance himself from it, besides claiming he's on his phone when he's asked questions, <laughs> very weak. I mean, he says that he was only involved for a few seconds. That's not a defense to the crime. I mean, if you're right. a bank robber, it's like, hey, I only held up the bank for a few seconds. I'm not guilty. It just doesn't fly. <laughs> right. And, and also what doesn't fly is his saying, as we saw um, in the that video clip, he kept saying, this is a non-story. This is a non-story. Right. I mean, I'm sorry, but trying to subvert an election is not a non-story. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that might play in the court of, of public opinion, but in the court of law, that's not going to play it at all. Um, at the moment, he hasn't been charged. And, you know, Jack Smith, we know, is doing a very narrow right. type of case, trying to push it across the finish line if he can. It's getting harder for him. But in terms of some sort of legal defense for Johnson's involvement, a legal defense that this was just the alternative slate if we needed it, it just does not add up to that in court. Mm -hmm. You know, let's talk more about Ken Chesborough, because he's now cooperating with all these state uh, investigations on fake, elec fake electors. Should we assume this means he's also cooperating with the federal investigation? It, it's hard to assume. I mean, one would, if I was his lawyer, I certainly wouldn't let him be hanging out there on the federal charges while he's talking to the state people because he's incriminating himself that way. From what we've heard from reporting, it does seem like um, he's doing a little bit of finger pointing and minimizing his own culpability here. And, you know, if he's really one of the first main cooperators, that's kind of the benefit he gets from being first in the door. He can say, it wasn't me. They misled me on that. But if I were Jack Smith, that would give me some pause as to how credible he's going to be, not to fully fall on the sword and say, I was misled about some of these things. Would, would it surprise you if, if Chesborough were cooperating with the federal investigation, even, even though he's way tied up in, in the Georgia investigation? No. No, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, what would surprise me, and it's hard because the case has been moving so quickly on so many different fronts, what would surprise me is if his lawyers let him do this piecemeal. Um, a defense lawyer would want to have a global agreement in place. Right. He's going to talk with everybody, and there's not going to be any surprise charges later. But we just don't know what the state of their communication has been. Mm -hmm. So Jack Smith, the special counsel Jack Smith, has until Saturday, and Saturday is... Actually, it's not New Year's Eve. It's the it's Day New before. Year's Eve Eve um, to file his response to Trump's immunity appeal in D.C., this D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, what should we expect in um, in his filing, do you think? Um, I think he's going to press the points of why historically this has no uh, basis for saying that the former president is completely immune from criminal prosecution, that it doesn't exist. For the Supreme Court, this is kind of a win-win situation, kicking it back to the circuit court, because they don't look too anxious to decide the case. And they do get the benefit of some good analysis by the Court of Appeals as well. But I think you're going to look at, you're going to look to Smith to show us why there's no basis for making this kind of a very overbroad argument. And I don't think that 
the Supreme Court is ultimately going to want to make that big of a ruling. You know, in the, la- in the last block, we had both uh, Harry Littman and Mark Joseph Stern say that there was a 0.000% chance that the Supreme Court would say that a president has immunity, that Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution. Do you share that, that uh, assessment? I'm a little bit more worried uh, than they are, because I think they could try to slice and dice it a little bit more narrowly. Trump's now made the argument more that he's saying he's within the, quote, outer perimeter, the sort of legal jargon, that it's still somehow within the scope of his presidential duties. I can't—the court could try to parse it. They wouldn't say a president's completely immune. But there's some wiggle room to say, okay, maybe what he was doing here— could have been under the auspices of his official duties, and that would kind of save him on that point. Would save him, but I'm not sure it would save would save the country. Shan Wu, thank you very much for, for coming in this evening and coming up. Pop quiz, you ready? What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Think about it. Because after the break, we'll help you compare notes with Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who is facing a lot of heat for getting that answer and her efforts to clean it up, oh, so very wrong. That's next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. The lack of care that has been on display for the last year and a half has created an incredible amount of chaos. Road buses arriving, not just in the city of Chicago, but surrounding communities as well. Some neighborhoods as far reaching as an hour and a half outside of the city of Chicago. Buses sent by the governor of Texas, literally dropping families off in the middle of nowhere. That was Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson this week in a joint briefing with the mayors of New York City and Denver, decrying Texas Governor Greg Abbott's ongoing program of busing scores of undocumented migrants and asylum seekers from the southern U.S. border to cities where Democrats are in charge. Democratic mayors say their cities have reached a tipping point, and they're asking the federal government for more support and they've taken legal action to try to limit Abbott's program. This week, New York City Mayor Eric Adams issued an executive order that restricts when buses carrying migrants can arrive in the city and mandating advanced notice. The move follows Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson's passing of a a city law 
which allows officials to impound buses that drop off mar- that drop off migrants without a permit or outside of approved hours and locations. But Texas Governor Abbott doesn't appear too interested in coordinating with city officials to help them better process migrant arrivals. Since city mayors began setting regulations on his busing program, Texas has responded by sending what Chicago's mayor refers to as rogue buses to to the suburbs of Chicago instead of leaving asylum seekers stranded. And last week, Abbott chartered a plane for more than 100 asylum seekers and flew them from El Paso to Chicago's O'Hare Airport. Joining me now, Nell Saltzman, immigration reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Thank you very much for being here this evening. You know, Democratic mayors aren't saying, you know, don't send the migrants here. They're just asking for coordination to avoid migrants from arriving in the middle of the night and being dropped off uh, in the middle of nowhere. What effect is Chicago's new ordinance having on the crisis? Yeah, so the new ordinance, like you said, it's just asking for coordination, really, um, with officials from Texas. And so buses are being sent to municipalities in all different municipalities. Migrants are being dropped off on the sides of roads, and they're walking, you know, 53 miles in Kankakee, Illinois. They were dropped off at a gas station and they were told that they are in Chicago. So basically, buses are being sent from Texas to avoid being seized and impounded, and they're being sent to these municipalities with really no coordination. Since the the city rules were instated, Texas has not been talking at all to city officials here in Chicago. And as you said, these buses are being sent unannounced to unapproved locations. Uh, Governor Abbott is also taking a page out of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' playbook and chartering flights to transport Mm -hmm. asylum seekers. Uh, Democratic mayors say this creates chaos and puts migrant safety at risk. You just uh, outlined, you know, just one example. Um, Over the weekend, more than 100 people arrived in the suburbs on buses before taking trains to Chicago. Uh, And officials say they were given no heads up. I mean, basically, is the cruelty the point? of Abbott's program? Because it doesn't seem like there's any real solutions to what he's doing. Right. Is the cruelty the point? I think, I don't know what the point is. I think the point might be to send a message about sanctuary cities um, being able to to respond to their their promises for, for how they help these people. I think the city of Chicago is really simply asking for more coordination and Municipalities, they don't have infrastructure, so it's backfiring because municipalities have less emergency management support than the city of Chicago does. The city of mm-hmm. Chicago right now has 17 shelters, um, you know, around all different neighborhoods open for up to, you know, they're sheltering 15,000 15, people, close to. And that's 7,000, over 7,000 children have arrived since the mission began. And that's a lot, a lot of people. And I think that's what we sort of need to keep front of mind is, is that these are real people. If mm-hmm. the mission is to, no. if, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Let me ask you this because, and, and I apologize for asking you an opinionated no. question and you are a, a news side reporter, but this <laughs> immigration, yeah. is, immigration is your beat. And I'm wondering, these, these migrants who are you know, being dumped there in Chicago and now outside of Chicago. 
Can you just give us an insight into what what you're hearing from them? Yeah, yeah. I I feel really fortunate. I I'm really close with one particular family because me and a colleague, photojournalist Armando Sanchez, we went to Texas and we actually went on a bus uh, with a family and a train from El Paso to Chicago. And so, hmm. I mean. I think my biggest sort of takeaway from that experience, writing that story, we don't know what it was like to to have trekked over seven countries, right? And we only know what it was like to be on a bus and a train for 32 hours. But when we got to Chicago Union Station, there's just such an element of fear and you don't know where to go, who to turn to. And that's just something that I think we all need to remember because migrants when they get to Chicago, they don't know where to go. They don't speak English, right? And they don't, they don't have any connections. A lot of Venezuelans have no connections, unlike Ukrainians or other types of mm. immigrants who have arrived in the city of Chicago over the years. Now, I am so glad uh, I asked you that last question because you brought some humanity to this story that we're, that we're all watching. Nell Saltzman, thank you very much for coming to the program this evening. Thanks for having me so much. Ahead tonight, what caused the Civil War? Nikki Haley says today it was a given that the answer is slavery, so much so that there was no need to mention it. Haley's cleanup tour in the Granite State, that's next. The Republican presidential primary field is filled with so many extreme candidates that former South Carolina governor and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, is seen as the moderate of the bunch. But yesterday, we got a reminder of what moderate means among the Republican presidential candidates these days. What was the cause of the United States Civil War? Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. Actually, Governor, it was an incredibly easy question. Unfortunately for Haley, her response conspicuously lacked the only correct answer. In the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? What do you want me to say about slavery? That is supposed, the supposed moderate in the Republican primary right now. So weak. And today, after a wave of backlash for her comments, Haley attempted a cleanup tour. Here she was on a New Hampshire radio show this morning. Of course, the Civil War was about slavery. We know that. That's that's the easy part of it. What I was saying was, what does it mean to us today? What it means to us today is about freedom. That's what that was all about. It was about individual freedom. It was about economic freedom. It was about individual rights. Sure. The Civil War was about individual freedom, unless you were an enslaved black person whose freedom was denied at birth. Sure. It was about economic freedom unless you were an enslaved black person whose nation-building labor was bred, violently coerced, and uncompensated. Sure, 
It was about individual rights. Unless you were in, enslaved in a nation where a chunk of the country seceded from the Union and went to war because it wanted to continue to deny you those very freedoms. And Nikki Haley should know all of that. Haley was the governor of South Carolina, the first state to secede in the Civil War, a state that made its reasoning incredibly clear. The opening sentence of South Carolina's 1860 proclamation seceding from the Union directly mentions slavery. And the proclamation goes on to cite, quote, increasing hostility on the part of non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery as the state's explicit reason for leaving the Union. When Haley was asked about the cause of the Civil War back then, in 2010, she described it as a fight over, quote, tradition versus change. I think it was tradition versus change is the way I see it. Tradition versus change on what? On individual rights and liberty of people. Whose rights, Nikki Haley? Which people? What tradition? The tradition of slavery? That is the Republican Party's moderate primary candidate. Joining me now, Jamie Harrison, chair of the Democratic National Committee. Chairman Harrison, thank you very much for being here this evening. Like Nikki Haley, you are from South Carolina. Were you surprised by your former governor's framing of the Civil War? Not surprised at all, Jonathan. Anybody, any black person in South Carolina always knew that this is this is who Nikki Haley is. And she has told us who she is time and time again when she tried to justify celebrating Confederate History Month by equating it with celebrating Black History Month in South Carolina. She made the same downright offensive whitewashing comments on the Civil War in, in the past. And again, as you said, arguing that it was tradition versus change. I mean, so I, I'm glad that the rest of the country are taking their rose colored lenses off as it relates to Nikki Haley. But there is nothing that is moderate about her. Uh, it is all mm -hmm. about ambition. It's all about power. And she will take away individual freedoms and rights in order to get that power. Mm -hmm. But again, she, she epitomizes what mega extremism is in the Republican Party right now. When you think about it, Donald Trump is now parroting Hitler, talking about the poisoning of the blood of the nation. You got Ron DeSantis, who just, and it's so interesting that he's beating Nikki Haley up on this comment, but he was <laughs> the one who just said that slavery benefited the slaves. Right. So uh, again, these are the front runners in the, uh, in the Republican Party right now, these mega extremists. All of these apples, Jonathan, are rotten. You can pick one of them, but they're all rotten. And this contest, this election is going to be about individuals, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, who stand up to protect the freedoms of Americans and individuals like Nikki Haley and Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are actively attacking and destroying those freedoms. Uh, because you mentioned Ron DeSantis, you've given me the opportunity to switch gears. And I want to talk to you about something um uh, Nikki Haley said today at a town hall where she was specifically asked if she would pardon Donald Trump if she were president and he were convicted in one of his many criminal cases. Listen to this. He asked if I would pardon Trump and I've answered this before. I would pardon Trump. What's in the best interest of the country is not to have an 80 year old man sitting in jail that continues to divide our country. What's in the best interest of the country, 
would be to pardon him so that we can move on as a country and no longer talk about him. Aaron, can we move on if Trump were pardoned, with the exception of Chris Christie, is the entire goal of the primary field to not alienate Trump's base, which is really the base of the GOP? Pretty much. You know, it, it's so amazing, uh, Jonathan, that the rule of law is important to the Republicans when it applies to everybody else other than themselves. Um, you know, they're always seeking the rule of law for somebody else. They're seeking rule of law for dictators in other countries. But anytime that it applies to them, and the misgivings and the things that they are doing, uh, you know, we need to give them a pass. Uh, but again, this is just epitomizes the extremism in this country uh, that we see with MAGA Republicans. This this election will boil down to very clear contrast. It's hope versus fear. It's progress versus chaos. It's the future versus the past. And so that's what people have to make a decision on where they want to go. Do they believe that America's best days are anchored in a bygone past or do they believe that our best days are in the future? Joe Biden got into this race because he knew that we were in the battle for the soul of this nation. He has a sense of moral clarity. These people don't have any core values other than destroying the freedoms of, of individuals in this country and gaining power. We see it in the lackluster uh, performance of the Republicans in Congress, the, the biggest do-nothing Congress in the history of do-nothing Congresses. Uh, we see it in the leadership uh, on the campaign trail with these, these folks. You're going to get gaff after gaff, and they're just going to tell us exactly who they are. So, folks, believe them. Believe them. Mm -hmm. But the one thing yeah. that they should know, Jonathan, Real we quick. won't go back. We're not going back to the, the old days, uh, it, the, the, the old past, that we are going to fight like hell to make sure that we protect the freedoms that we have gained in this country. And we won't let yep. Nikki Haley, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis take us back. I know I'm not going back. That's for sure. <laughs> DNC chair Jamie Harrison, thank you very much for coming on tonight. Thank you. And we have one more story for you tonight. How President Biden's historic judicial appointments helped reshape the courts in 2023. More on that right after the break. This is Sunshine Sykes. She is the first Navajo Nation citizen ever appointed to the federal bench. Judge Sykes was confirmed in May of 2022. This is Zahid Qureshi. He became the first Muslim American federal judge in June 2021. The appointments of Judge Sykes and Judge Qureshi represent major milestones when it comes to diversity in our federal judiciary. According to HuffPost reporter Jennifer Bendry, of the 166 judges that Biden has confirmed since taking office, two-thirds are women at 108 and two-thirds are people of color at 110. That alone is an extraordinary feat given, again, how white and male the nation's courts have always been. Biden also prioritized diversity of professional backgrounds. He put 30 people into lifetime federal judgeships who have strong backgrounds in protecting people's civil rights, including public defenders and civil rights attorneys. But is all of this enough to outweigh the mark Donald Trump left on the federal judiciary? Joining me now is Jennifer Bendry, senior politics reporter for HuffPost. Jennifer, thank you very much for being here tonight. Great to see you. So um, talk about the long-term impact of 
of these appointments, especially given how many appointments uh, uh, President Trump had in his in his tenure when these the folks he appointed were a lot of them were unqualified and a lot of them were in their 30s and early 40s, thus being able to serve on the bench for decades. Well, I think uh, if you want to look at the comparison to Biden, I mean, like you said before, this he had some good news this year and some bad news this year and a big question for 2024. And as you pointed out, the good news is the unprecedented diversity of the people that he put into these lifetime federal judgeships. Um, like you said, two thirds are women, two thirds are people of color. He put a, a record numbers of civil rights attorneys and public defenders onto the public bench. But then you have to look at the bad news for Biden. And the bad news is that for the first time since uh, he's been president, the pace of his judicial nomination slowed and it slipped behind where Trump was at this point in his presidency. So at this in this past year, Biden confirmed 69 federal judges to lifetime seats. At this point in Trump's tenure, in his third year, he confirmed 102. So that's dozens apart. And the big question now is, whether he can catch up to and surpass Trump's numbers in in his final year in office and at the end of his term. Um, we oftentimes a president's legacy is defined by the, the number of judges that they put under the federal bench, because these are the people who will be on the courts for sometimes decades after a president mm-hmm. leaves office. So it's on Biden and it's on set of Democrats to pick up the pace in 2024, use every opportunity they can to pack nominees into hearings, to give them votes on the floor, for Biden to keep the nominations flying through. And I talked to some judicial experts and some progressive um, advocacy groups just for their takes on the year. And the consensus appears to be among all that it's possible that if if Biden and Senate Democrats keep their eye on the ball in 2024 and don't get distracted by election year politics, that they could just keep cranking out these Mm -hmm. judges and getting them through. But I can't say enough how much a president's judicial legacy really matters because when they're gone, when a president's gone, these people, as we're seeing today, these are the people who are making calls on all of nation's appeals courts and district courts all over the country that are affecting millions and millions of people every day, right. way after these people have left the White House. So this is a crucial a crucial year for Biden beyond an election year. Right. This is a crucial year because he still has nearly 100 court vacancies heading into 2024. Jennifer Bendry, thank you very much for coming to the show this evening. And that will do it for me. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.